Um, get out your Bibles and turn to Second Kings chapter 24, which in my Bible is on page 413. We're continuing this series of messages. Uh, we're looking at this major event in the history of God's people. We call it the exile. Um, and it's actually, the, the exile is just one of a bunch of times in the Bible where God's people were what you might describe as like a threatened minority. Like, so they were kind of a relatively small group of people surrounded by like much more powerful forces around them. So you know, I think last summer we talked a bit about Israel in Egypt. So that would have been one of those times, right? They were slaves in Egypt. Another one of those times, we talk a lot of times about the early church, like right, right when Jesus came and they were in the midst of this enormous and influential Roman Empire. And that was another time when, when God's people were surrounded by this huge force around them. But probably the most famous example is this event that we've been talking about when uh, the empire Babylon came in and invaded Jerusalem and took those people, took a bunch of people away into exile. That's what we're looking at today. So we're going to look here, uh, 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 12. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. Jehoiakim is the uh, he was the king of Jerusalem. Uh, as the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, uh, removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace, and he took away all the gold, like all the gold articles that Solomon, who used to be the king of Israel, that he had made for the temple of the Lord. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile uh, all Jerusalem, which is actually kind of an exaggeration, because uh, then he clarifies what he really means. He took into exile all the officers and fighting men, so we're looking at like the army there, uh, and all the craftsmen and artisans, like the artists, a total of 10,000, and only the poorest people of the land were left. And then he kind of repeats this, just with a little different detail. It says, Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, he also took the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land. Uh, the king of Babylon was deported, also deported uh, the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 craftsmen and artisans. And then he made Mataniah, who's King Jehoiakim's uncle, he made him king in his place, uh, kind of like a puppet king, and changed his name to Zedekiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar attacks, and the first thing that stands out to me when I read through this section, which kind of tries to describe this story almost like a history, uh, is that nobody dies, at least not in this section. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar comes, he takes some loot, uh, he kidnaps a bunch of people, which is obviously not good, um, but there's no bloodshed described in this section of chapter 24. And you might read that, and you might think, wow, like Nebuchadnezzar, like what a good guy. Um, you know, what restraint not to burn it all down? You might be thinking that, uh, but if you're thinking that, you're, you're wrong. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is not a softy. Um, he was like brain in Pinky and the Brain. Uh, what would you like to do tonight? Same thing we do every night. Try to take over the world, okay? Uh, that's his thing. His thing, Nebuchadnezzar's thing, is trying to take over the world, world domination. And he's good at it. Uh, probably top 20, maybe top 10 
in world history. Um, so if you are a powerful king and your end game is taking over the world um, and you've just conquered this city of Jerusalem, what's your next move? Some of you don't think a lot about taking over the world, so I'm going to walk you through it step by step. Your first impulse, probably after you've conquered the city, is you're thinking, i got to kill everybody. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar, he did some of that. Um, he had to kind of keep up this reputation that he had for being pretty ruthless. Uh, but actually, it's, it's kind of hard to kill everybody. Um, and more importantly, killing everybody works against one of your biggest needs. Remember, you're a big shot king. Uh, you've got an economy to run. So you need people to grow stuff, and you need people to make stuff, and you need people to buy stuff. You need people, and they need to be alive. Um, so if you want a whole nation to kind of serve you, but you don't want to kill everybody, and you probably also don't want to have to have like a million police everywhere trying to keep everybody in order, what do you do? Well, I would argue that you do just exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. Uh, so in chapter 24, who did Nebuchadnezzar take into exile? Took officers, fighting men, craftsmen, artisans, government officials, and leading men. Now, the fighting men, that kind of makes sense, right? Um, you figure they're probably good slave labor, and you probably want to keep them close by. But what about the others? What about like the artists and the, the craftsmen and the leading men. Well, I would argue that these folks are probably, among all the Israelites, they are they're the culture makers. Okay. Today, they'd be like the, the people who give TED Talks um, or like music executives or CEOs of big companies or like pop stars. Like they're the people who shape what we think of as our culture. Our music, our art, our language, our values. So why would you take them? Why not just take like the beefy army guys, right? Take the beefy army guys, put them to work as slaves, and just leave the rest. Well, if you make them slaves, here's the thing. If you make them slaves, you're always going to have conflict, Okay? So instead of making it like Babylon versus Jerusalem for eternity, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I think, did something much savvier, much more clever, much more threatening. Nebuchadnezzar took the most influential people in the land and he set about influencing them. Okay. So as one pastor put it this week, uh, what I read, he said, um, Nebuchadnezzar Babylonized them. Okay? So he taught them a Babylonian worldview and Babylonian business practices and Babylonian clothing and Babylonian food and Babylonian art and Babylonian religion. What he's trying to do, he's trying to erase all the difference between Jerusalem and Babylon. So all the things that make God's people unique. And if he can make these people share his Babylonian religion and his Babylonian culture and his Babylonian language, what do you call an Israelite? who's adopted Babylonian religion, Babylonian culture, and Babylonian language. You call them a Babylonian. 
So what he's trying to do is he's trying not to just take the Israelites out of Israel. He's trying to take the Israel out of the Israelites. It's a sneaky plan. It's kind of a terrifying one, really. So now, if you are one of the exiles, okay, if you're one of these people from Jerusalem, what's your next move? If that's Nebuchadnezzar's plan, what's your next move? Because this is bad, all right? You are very small. Babylon is very big. So you want to be faithful to God. You're surrounded by this massive persuasion campaign all around you. What's your response going to be? Generally, I would argue, I think you got three options. First, I think you can hunker down. Uh, sort of separate yourself as much as possible. Stay distinctive. Like resist. Basically, avoid Babylonian culture. I think that's your first option. Try to separate. I think your second option is you get ready to fight. You're going to subvert the empire. You're going to dismantle it. You're going to challenge it. Right? Maybe it's big guy versus little guy, but the little guy is not going to go down without a fight. Okay, You can resist. And I think your third option is just to do what Nebuchadnezzar wants. Just assimilate, become just another Babylonian. I think those are basically your options. And um, the thing about that this week, and it seems to me that I think we see something similar today. Maybe we're trying to be faithful to God in this world, but we're swimming against a powerful cultural current. Uh, you know, you stand there at Riverside Park, and, and you're looking out at the Grand River, and from the park, it often looks like such a lazy river, doesn't it? it real calm, like nothing's happening there. But man, I bet if you got in there, uh, you would very quickly realize that you are no match for the strength of that river. Um, I mean, even if you were to just jump in and just try to stay in one place, I think it would be extremely difficult. I, I don't recommend it. I, I, think it I think it would sweep you away. I think our culture is like that. Um, I mean, it looks innocent. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't look like an army, right? But it is so powerful. It's like this massive persuasion campaign. Um, I was thinking about it with shopping. Um, like, I think we all like to think that we're really careful shoppers. Um, like, we're not going to get tricked into buying something. Like, we're on to consumerism. Like, we only really buy what we need. But I was thinking this week, like, is there anything that Apple or Google or Amazon like, doesn't know about you? And is there, like, any detail of your life that they haven't tried to exploit to change your behavior, or to get you to buy something. Facebook, it's worth $190 billion, and it's free for everybody to use. They're selling something, right? I mean, and these forces, they're powerful. They obviously are doing something. I don't think we really even realize it. Or, you know, I've always wondered, like, who decided that my baggy cargo pants from high school, that will, by the way, never fall apart, um, who decided I shouldn't wear those anymore? 
Lauren did, right? Um, <laughs> but how did she decide that? Right? Like, who decided that my clothes should be tighter fitting? Like, it used to be, I think, that they were supposed to be loose. Or like, I, I'm stepping out on a limb here, but I, I think I heard that like stripes are kind of out, but chevrons are in. Like, that's the pattern right now. Who decided that? I didn't decide that, right? But I feel like I look better in my pants today than in my old, like, baggy cargos. And I think chevrons look cool. Um, how did that happen? Like, who decided that my old stuff wasn't good enough anymore and I needed new stuff? Who decided I should be dissatisfied with this? I think we are constantly shaped by this culture around us. And I think as it goes, subtly, quietly, with like what we buy, I think it goes with just about everything else. I mean, how much do TV programs and movies and stuff like that, how much does that dictate what we think normal sexuality looks like? Or how much do ads shape what we think good parents need to do or what we think young women need to look like? We Christians, we believe that we are to be distinctive. That our little culture of faith, that it's essential, that it's worth preserving in the face of this much more influential, much more powerful culture around us. But in truth, it's like, it's like swimming against the current of a very powerful river. I mean, it doesn't look scary when you step into it. But all of a sudden you look and you realize like the riverbank where you jumped in, that was way down that way. It happens in no time. And I think that when you find that you are under that kind of influence, your first impulse is either to hunker down and just try to survive or get ready to fight. And at the time of the exile, there were prophets who told the Israelites to do just exactly that. So there's this guy, Hananiah. Uh, it's in Jeremiah chapter 28. It's on page 822 if you want to look at it. It's prophet Hananiah. And this is his prophecy. He says, he's talking to the exiles and he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. He says, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place everybody and everything that was taken away. In other words, hey guys, this is just like, it's a two-year blip. Like God's on His way. He's going to take Babylon out. We're going to be fine. Which means, if you're an Israelite living in exile, like just keep a low profile for a while and get ready for the rebellion. Right? Like Stay below the radar and be ready to take your enemy out. That's Hananiah. And, and to me, anyway, it feels right. It feels like a good response. You're threatened. The culture around you is super powerful. This makes sense. And, and you hear this from Christians today, right? Who say, like, as much as possible, you've got to protect yourself from the culture. You've got to separate yourself from the culture. The culture is against you. You need to be against it, right? And there's, like, there's a logic to that. And yet, as soon as Hananiah's prophecy is written down, Jeremiah gives a prophecy. And his prophecy is basically 
Everything Hananiah said, not that. Okay. This is Jeremiah 29. This is the prophecy. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Fight! No, just kidding. It doesn't say that. Retreat! No, it doesn't, it doesn't say that either. Build houses and settle down. Bet you didn't see that coming. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. In other words, get ready for the long haul. This is not a two-year blip. Okay? And then this, and this is, I think, the real shocker. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Uh, some, of you, some of you will know that the word that's translated for peace and prosperity, it's this word shalom, which um, it means uh, like everything's kind of functioning properly. It's like a deep down kind of peace. There's justice. Everything's good. Uh, so he says, seek the shalom of the city. Seek the shalom of Babylon, to which I've carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it shaloms, you too will shalom. And we was a little surprised. And what's he calling for? He's saying, don't run away from the city of Babylon. Don't avoid it. Pray for it. Work for it. And you know, it's, it's not like Jeremiah was naive. It's not like he didn't know that Babylon was like this hostile force. It's not like he didn't know Nebuchadnezzar's plan. But Jeremiah didn't say retreat. He said get to work. You know, it's interesting. Next week we're going to look at this guy, Daniel, and his friends. Um, they were some of the exiles in the Bible. Um, some of these sort of best and brightest who were taken away. And we read in Daniel about how Nebuchadnezzar trained them. And he taught them like language and literature and culture, all these things. Uh, and as the story progresses, we learn that Daniel became a leading advisor to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it says that he entered the king's service. He's not undermining Babylon. He's not fighting against it. Daniel read Jeremiah 29, didn't he? He took it to heart. He got a government job. He's seeking the shalom of the city God has sent him to. And can I just say, like, this is not what exiles expect to hear. Which is probably why it's really important that we talk about it. You know, we expect to hear that we've just got these three options, right? You can separate, you can fight, or you can just get swept away. Daniel chooses none of the above. Next week, we're going to look at how not just to engage with the world, but how to engage it distinctively, like as a Christian, without compromising. But, but this week, I just want us to sit with this really incredible command. For God's people to go into a world whose values are radically different than our own, a world that finds our faith often offenses, like sometimes even, even like bigotry. To go into that world and to not return with hate, but prayer. 
Not to undermine the world around us, but to work to make it more safe, more beautiful, more just. For neighbors to work for better schools. For for artists to create more beautiful and truthful pieces. For nurses and teachers and lawyers and business owners and just regular people to stand up for justice wherever they're working. To not overlook mercy wherever they end up. We don't undermine this world. We, We seek its shalom. And I'll be honest, this doesn't really make sense from our point of view. That's the thing. Jeremiah 29 didn't come from our point of view. You know, this culture around us, it can feel so hostile. Like, um, it can feel like it's just going to sweep us all away. And that our little faith, our little church, it can feel so small, uh, so weak, so flawed. Like it's just absolutely no match for this culture. But see, that's just our perspective. <laughs> you know, we see the Babylons of the world and we're really impressed. We're impressed by their power. We're impressed by their reach. God sees things very differently. He's not afraid of, He's not intimidated by Babylonian culture or American culture. He's not crossing his fingers and like hoping for the best. He knows how the story ends. He knows where the real power is. You know, there's this passage. It's in 1 Corinthians. Um, and I think of it as one of the theme verses of our little church. And actually, it's, it's the first sermon I ever preached here. I wasn't even the pastor yet. I think I was just interviewing. Um, I want you to listen for where the power is, okay? Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, it's foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Jesus faced the greatest culture of his day, the Roman Empire. It made Babylon look like the minor leagues. Um, Powerful, influential. Jesus faced the greatest culture of his day, not by calling down lightning and fireballs on them. He faced the greatest culture of his day by dying on their cross to offer them life. And when he did that, he, he, he flipped the power dynamics of this world upside down. You know, the, the church is almost never at its best when it's grasping for worldly power. Um, it's, why, it's why these pastors who've endorsed candidates this year tend to look so foolish. Um, you know, I understand that Trump's main strategy to recruit Christians is his promise to repeal this Johnson Amendment, which will give us, uh, as churches, like more opportunity to be politically active. And I think, these guys just don't get it. They just don't get it. That's not where the power is. Jesus flipped that upside down. The power of God shows up when we're like Christ sacrificial, serving the world. 
to offer it life. That's where the power is. And that will change the world. Let's pray together.